0: The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We're going to read in Second Kings this evening. So if you join me there in Second Kings in your copy of God's Word, I'll just uh, read this with us this evening. It's a rather lengthy chapter, but that's all right. We're here to publicly read the Word of God, which is what we're instructed to do by God and the Epistles to Timothy. So that's exactly right. It's good enough for God to tell us; it's good enough for us to do it. So, all right, Second Kings chapter nineteen. This is interesting because you have an interplay here between King Hezekiah the leaders of Israel, and the prophet Isaiah. Second Kings. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it. Now we kind of have to back up and ask ourselves, what did he hear? Remember Sennacherib boasting that God has told me to defeat your land and your kingdom and your nation. And uh, he's saying, I'm coming to do it. Giving him a little warning. hey, saying... uh, uh, I'll even give you some help here. You know, we'll, we'll spot you some horses or chariots or whatever and help you out. So when he heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It's obviously a little bit of an idiom or a proverb that they understood very well. It's like, look, we're just at the end of our rope here. We're at the end of our strength. We can do nothing. We face insurmountable odds. So it seems. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Just interesting, if you read that word, so, you might just kind of read over it. But it's kind of saying, just like what they were told to do, they did in that manner. Like, okay, they carried out what they were instructed. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirhaka, the king of Ethiopia, Look, he has come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? "...have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Henna and Iva?" And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, "...O Lord God of Israel." The one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands." and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. That's the reason they were successful. There was no God protecting them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You are the Lord God, You alone. By the way, how do the nations of the world get around this? They just say it's all myth. They just you know, pass it off as nothing. It's of no import to them. So they thus nullify God's Word, as it were, by, in their minds by just saying, well, it's all made up. It's all just mythical, legend, history, whatever. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria, I have heard. Notice that. Hezekiah twice now has gone to the Lord uh, he's gone to him through Isaiah. The first time, he's gone to the temple more directly, you might say, the second time to minister or to pray rather and, and receive ministration from the Lord. And, and, and then Isaiah sends to him and says, because you have prayed, because your trust is in the Lord, not in chariots and horses. Remember the verse of Scripture that talks about that? Psalm 20, verse number 7. Look that up. Make sure that I'm on track there. He's trusting in God. Because of that, I have heard, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Verse 21, the virgin daughter of Zion. Now, by the way, notice in your Bible, it might be laid out now a little differently. This is a poetic layout. This is a pronouncement from God in Hebrew poetic form of what is His promise. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Speaking now, you know, kind of figuratively, if you will, directly to the king of Assyria. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains. To the limits of Lebanon, I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it, God says, from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and herb and the green herb, as the grass of the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. Pause. Notice, God made all that stuff that Assyria was using in its conquering ways and God appointed them to do that. Kingdoms are, are raised up by God. They're put down by God. And that is what He's saying to them. Look, you're not, you're not going to have a victory against Me. The fact of the matter is I am using you. You might not know that, but that's what's happening. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in. And your rage against Me. Because your rage against Me and your tumult have come up to My ears, therefore I will put My hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. Now, I think he's turning to the nation now, to Judah, southern kingdom. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same, and also in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them, And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way He came... By the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sheritzer struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esharhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. He was cut off, just like God said that he would be, uh, cut off. You might want to look up some time about Sennacherib and secular history and uh, I'll make this your homework assignment, okay? Just look it up online and see if you can find something about him in the records of his conquests and what, how it relates to Jerusalem. I think you might find it somewhat interesting, okay? We won't go into that further this evening. Thus reads the word of the Lord and uh, the history of the nation of Israel uh yeah strange strange things have happened in history, including this this event. so you couldn't have imagined it, uh, how it came about, but uh, God had it all planned out from the beginning, and uh, he did it so all right, well, where have we been today in the Bible? let's think about that for a moment. We talked about this morning the joy of salvation, okay, more than just the blessing of forgiveness, salvation bigger than, than the doctrine of forgiveness. And we looked at a number of things that, that, is, uh, that salvation does for us, that God does in us, with us, to us, and all worthy of our gratitude and certainly worthy of our joyfulness. Of all the people on the face of the earth, we often say this, Christians should be the most joyful. We have a lot to be thankful for. We know that uh, the form of this world is passing away we can kind of see the, the, the ephemeral nature of things, the kind of illusory nature of reality uh, that you know, people kind of are fixed on that as if it's uh, a fixed reference point, but we know that it's temporal, it's passing away, it will be burned up, uh, people will be judged, and this is just the uh, kind of opening scene of an eternity that God has planned. So, the joy of salvation, and then we looked at one of the reasons why we can have such joy, and that is because the gates of Hades have been subjugated under the power of Christ, such that death itself and that phrase, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church that's what that means that death cannot enclose you, who are a believer in Christ um, but and, and that was that, that was a wonderful. Learning for me just to be able to clarify in my own mind and kind of walk through the process of taking you there through uh, you know what gates are in the literal way and then looking at them metaphorically and then looking at what the metaphor is really connected to the Old Testament uh, figure that we looked at and just seeing how that is so uh, excellent uh, opportunity for us to learn today the the the, the idea of death. However, uh, we're not done with that idea today. I want to talk about it a little bit more because there are not in all people the knowledge that you and I have about Christ's victory over death. Uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1.10, uh, chapter 1 and verse number 10, we're not going to spend any great length of time there uh, this evening, but... Uh, it says, speaking of the Gospel of Christ, 2 Timothy 1 and verse number 10. 2 Timothy, that's right. Uh, Paul says, uh, I'll start in verse 8 because you have to get a running head start whenever you're in Scripture. Uh, getting the context. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the Gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But And that purpose and grace have now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who did what? Number one, has abolished... Death. And that's kind of like what we talked about this morning. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay, and then Paul was appointed a preacher to that, an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, to bring that message to people. All right, so the problem is that there is not in everybody that knowledge that Christ has abolished death. They have no connection to Christ, they have no knowledge of the significance of this. I mean, many people know what the basic Christian teaching is about Christ dying and and that sort of thing, but it, it hasn't dawned on them, which is what faith and repentance and regeneration all connected do to us, hasn't dawned on them yet the reality of that and how that impacts their life. As I have been thinking then uh, in the past months about our condition in our present world, it has come to my uh, my attention that... The reason that we're in the fix that we're in is because of the fear of death and and complicated by a number of other matters. I wonder why people are so dreadfully afraid of this coronavirus. Uh, you know it's the percentage, it's the mortality rate, it's the fatality rate, it's whatever it is and The evidence is clear, however, that there is tremendous fear. Tremendous fear. The extreme and rapid behavior modification for such a long period of time, I think, clearly proves that. And I'm going to spend a little time just thinking about that out loud with you. Despite the fact that if you look at the percentage of people who have gotten sick, and then the much smaller percentage of people who have been hospitalized, and the much smaller yet percentage of people who have—well, I'll, I'll go to the next level and said had very severe complications, and then the much and the smaller percentage, maybe not quite so much smaller, who have died. And you've got a, 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 a very uh, a problem that has touched very severely a few people. But it has been blown up like this, like it's about to touch us all. And, uh, the long period of time in which we have had this behavior modification, uh, is, is an important phrase, that idea of a long period. In the short term, at the beginning, obviously, we had, uh, you know, to act prudently. We didn't know what we know now. There were terrible predictions, many unknowns, but that's not the case. At this point, the the unknowns have largely been cleared. The doomsday predictions have proven false. And we know where to target our efforts, where to target our quarantines, how to care for people better, how to reduce the spread, and and all of that stuff. And plus, we just know more about the the fatality rate of this, and uh, more data has come to light. that helps us to think about it more clearly and more level-headedly than in panic mode. But the proofs of the fear, I think, are are obvious, and I'll give you a number of them. Number one, government edicts, shutting down normal work, commercial activity, and mandating what is, in effect, house arrest at a time when no criminal cause uh, was uh, given for us to be under house arrest, in effect. Um, The massive scale of that was just tremendous. Uh, There's a, a rapid shift and a massive shift of power in the states away from the legislative branches to the executive branches in many states, if not all of them, seized overnight and without regard for the constitutional system in which we live. If there were, was no fear of something bad, this stuff would not have happened. This, in turn, has led to another phenomenon which sinful people tend toward anyway, and that is the accumulation of power and retaliatory behavior to make people conform to what the authorities wish to be done. This is all driven by fear. Okay, stoppage of church meetings is a second item for lengthy periods of time. Some churches are, are yet not meeting for worship in the ordinances. Uh, some have said we're not opening until January. Some are suggesting that they will not be back until COVID-19 is eradicated. That may never occur, friends, or at least not for years. If Christians were not in fear and governments trying to shut them down as well, this, this would not be happening. Okay. There's over-caution in the medical community, partly due to risk aversion and defensive medicine practices. You've got to avoid lawsuits to keep your money. Uh, of course, medical practitioners do not want people to die, and they do not want to be very busy either. But this should not be motivation for people to tell the noble lie, to try to gin up fear, so that people will modify their behavior in an extreme fashion to avoid ever getting sick. We don't want manipulation. While well, fear tends to manipulate. Uh, we have uh, avoided a catastrophe. Hospitals are on far, far better footing than they were in April. Equipment and knowledge are much better now, but the big if is always ever present as a generator of fear. What if we go back to worse than April. Yeah, I mean, it's always possible. It's always possible, I suppose. I'm confident personally that we will not go back to worse than April despite the predictions that have recently come out of which, yes, I am aware. You have also evidence of fear in the social fabric changes in the population at large. Human nature and... Government policy has encouraged people to become snitches. Informal agents of the government trying to enforce their version of morality upon others. On the street, people are more standoffish. Forget about hospitality and and similar things in, in many cases. Of course, you have the extreme other end of people that are just foolish and gather large groups of people together without regard for human life. I think of the college parties on campuses that cities are trying to cut off. Uh, People even in the church are strongly divided on the right course of conduct to the point of anger and hatred and even leaving the church. I know of one case of a deacon leaving another church to go to a second church. The strange thing is, or the ironic thing is, the second church is doing basically the same thing the first church was, just a couple weeks different. And so, why this, this anger and upsetness and hatred and it's all caused by fear. And a slavish obedience to governing authorities who do not have a legitimate authority in the realm of church worship in the first place. This is not mere prudence. Fear is hasty like this. Prudence is patient. It's a very good rule of thumb. When everybody's a twitter about things, you know, and that, means something now new than it didn't before. But when everybody's... You just say, look. Stop a second and think. Think. Don't let panic take you over. And there are other strange features of our situation that demonstrate that fear is upon our world yet at this time. There's a subtle change of terms of the social agreement that we kind of hatched back in March to combat the virus. At first, it was 15 days to flatten the curve. People largely agreed to that premise and were willing to take a couple or three weeks to bring the virus down. But now, people at large are unquestioning in their adherence to the idea that we must reduce the number of cases as close to zero as possible. We won't return to church activity or sports activity or whatever until the risk is zero. You know, uh, one state has said we won't open until the test positivity rate is under 2%. Well, if all you're doing is testing sick people, you can make that test positivity rate over 2% as long as you want. It's a very difficult metric to, to tend to. And uh, certainly gr- the granularity is wrong. It doesn't take into account regional differences and, and all of those things that need to be taken into account. This risk intolerance is a manifestation of fear. Changing from deaths to cases, that's the subtle change that has happened that people haven't noticed really. Some have, but others haven't. Uh, is uh, an effective shift to continue societal stoppage. The number of deaths today seems to have faded into the background in terms of importance. not I'm not saying it has or entirely has. It just... Now it's cases, cases, cases. It's my view that cases are basically irrelevant like other coronaviruses. It is deaths and severe complications and like stroke that really matter. If we have millions of cases but very few deaths and strokes, that would be, to my mind, a smashing success. I wonder if you might agree. I mean, we have a lot of colds. We have a lot of flus. We have a lot of those kinds of things and... We don't really bother about it. I mean, they keep track of the cases and that sort of thing, but it's just the severe cases that are the problem. Number six on my list, a seeming failure to recognize that risk is unavoidable in life. Societies lived with far worse situations in terms of death and disease than we do for most of human history. I'll go off my little notes here, which are available on the website, by the way, And just note, 70-some years ago, 75, uh, men signed up for almost certain death to fight a war to guarantee the freedom of the United States. They got off boats at Normandy and Utah Beach knowing that they were going to be shot at by a very skilled army. And they did it. And today that percentage of people who get it and have symptoms and get sick and very sick and die is vanishingly small compared to the risk tolerance that the greatest generation had. Listen to this. Go back 100 years. Lifespans in 1920 were somewhere between 55 and 61 years for men and a little longer for women. Okay, Every one of you over 60, in that circumstance, in that that time period 100 years ago, you'd be on borrowed time. 100 years before that, in 1820, life expectancy at the time of birth for a man was 39 years in 1820. And for women, it was 43 and a half. Give you the extra six months, okay? If you made it to 20, you know how the life charts are. If you make it to 20, then it's likely you're going to make it farther down the line than 39 because you've passed the very dangerous part of the initial year or two or five years of life, you know, and infant mortality and all of that. So you might expect to live, if you're a man, into your early 40s. Think about that. People lived in that environment, went to church, did society, did work, commerce, all those things. And it was dreadfully deadly to be alive. I mean, 40 years old? I'm on, I'm on borrowed time, you know? And uh, actually we all are, if you think about it. you know it's true. That's right, right from the start. That's right. You have a 25 percent is it 25? in michigan twenty five percent chance of being aborted if you're in a woman's womb crazy stuff insane you don't i mean go look that stat up i had some in my head is there, but I mean it might be wrong, but it's something crazy like that just just weird now when people live to seventy eight or eighty and die from covid. Men's expectation of life today is around 81, and there's panic in the streets. Now the society seems to demand that the government protect us from all risk at the cost of much liberty. That's fear. Wisdom recognizes that zero risk is impossible. Look, we of all people are most prudent. We don't add unnecessary risk to our lives. We always hasten to add that because somebody's always going to take what I say of this stuff out of context, and they're going to say, "Oh, I just ca- throw caution to the wind and be an idiot." That's the last thing that I'm going to be, you know. Exactly. Don't be ridiculous. Thank you, brother. We just keep that on a loop and uh, remind people. The other, another area that shows that fear is driving this is irrational behavior. Irrational behavior. There's probably a bunch of examples that I could think of, but you know we we, uh, we have you know many students in a classroom, but we can't have more than a few people in other in other contexts or uh, you know things like that. Sending sick people back to homes full of senior citizens at high risks high risk is totally irrational, totally irrational particularly when field hospitals were ready to receive them, yet those hospitals went largely unused, you might recall. In our own region and around the world, field hospitals set up ready to receive patients and they got five patients and they were equipped for a thousand. Totally irrational. Refusing to bring children to schools or send them to schools when they are by far the least affected by the virus. That's been, I think, clearly proven over all of this other nations sending their kids back to school uh they're following the science like we supposedly are okay refusing to address real issues that come with shutting down commerce and interhuman activities is also irrational think of the depression the suicide the abuse the illness and medical care that's delayed for people that need treatment for serious conditions all of that is irrational That's fear. Fear is driving that. Prudence acts rationally and in measured ways. To be sure, there's more than fear underlying our our current situation. Another major, major motivator is greed for power. A crisis is upon the nation and there is a philosophy that says we use the crisis, we magnify the crisis, we cause great disorder and chaos in the society and magically out of that chaos and disorder will come order. A new order. An order of Marxist and communist proportions is what they're talking about. Okay, so there's a desire for power that has grabbed some people mythically. Order supposed to arise out of the chaos in, this new, in a new order for the world. But what I am saying tonight, putting that aside, I'm arguing that without fear, these things would not have happened that we see. And what is that fear? Whence the fear? It's fear of something. Well, it's not fear merely of illness because although none of us like to be sick and blowing our nose all the time and in bed with a fever and chills and all of that sort of stuff, we've done it many times. We've survived. We've had the flu bugs and the gastro bugs and the colds and the like and all of that. It's fear of something worse than that. It's fear of death. This fear of death is king when the only thing you have to live for is yourself. Physical life is the most important thing when you have a naturalistic worldview. What do I mean by naturalistic worldview? Not a supernatural worldview in which God is the king of life. Without life, you can do nothing. You can enjoy nothing. You can be with no one. You see? So it's incomprehensible to those folks to leave this life. It's even worse if you're unsure what happens after you die. Some people are sure, they think, that when I die, I'm done. Other people are unsure. Imagine an existence like that. That you don't know the truth about life and death. And this fear is magnified when we consider the truth that every person at base in the foundation of their being, knows God and knows in some rudimentary way the, the law of God. Romans 1.19 tells us that they knew God, but they did not glorify Him as God. They, they saw the eternal power and deity of God from the creation. They knew the law of God in their hearts. God put it in the image of God that's in every man. Each is convinced in their own conscience that they are guilty of breaking that law. It's interesting when you watch a video of Ray Comfort on the beach uh, wherever he is in California ministering to people and he asks them questions. Getting at their conscience. The law of God says, do not steal. Have you stolen? Yes. Uh, do not lust. Have you lusted? Yes. Uh, do not worship other God. Have you blasphemed? Yes, they admit it. And so he says to them, by your own admission, your conscience is telling you that you are a liar and a thief and an adulterer and a blasphemer. And the Bible tells us what the penalty for that is. You know that. We know that. Because God has given us a conscious conscience. Now, their conscious awareness of their conscience might not be Very well activated. It might not be bothersome to them until later in life or, you know, in the valley of their life when things are low or when they face God as judge. But the conscience and the existence of God is in the mix and undergirds people's fear of death. People, as I said this morning, have eternity in their hearts. They know something is beyond this. I mean, that's clear. Every, you know, People talk about the afterlife. They know something. They have this sense, but they always explain it incorrectly if they explain it outside of God's Word. They know God is displeased with sin. At least this. They will not be able to argue when they face God at judgment. Can you imagine? A sniveling little human telling God that He's wrong? No. It's not going to work. Hebrews 2:15. Let's go there. There's our that's our target text just that one verse this evening. All this has been kind of introductory to that. Hebrews 2:15. Starting back in verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Paradoxically, the Lord used the tool which is used against all humans that tool itself to defeat it and how did he what did he do it says and release those so not only did he did he destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil that's katargeo that verb to render powerless not to annihilate or or erase the devil still exists obviously and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime Subject to bondage. Subject to bondage. They're held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That's an alternative translation of this verse. Through the fear of death, their lives were a kind of slavery. Now we know, you know, we might think that that Paul would have said here that, that, um, you know, they were slaves, we were slaves to Satan. Or maybe he would say we're slaves to sin. And in a, I don't think we're slaves of Satan, but slaves to sin is certainly true. That is exactly right. Romans 6 tells us that. But this text doesn't say that. It says another thing. We're also enslaved through the fear of death. So the fear, the bondage, yeah, that's good too. Uh, that bondage that comes because of, of the fear of death. They have, People have no freedom in life because they cannot handle death. No freedom in life because they don't know what to do with death. It's, it's like... Uh, it's a hundred times better than this illustration, but imagine if you have a situation in your life where you have zero debt. Maybe you had a house note and a car note and you finally paid them off. And you're like, oh... I'm free. <laughs> My budget, you know, it's better. Uh, it's it's freer now because the borrower servant to the lender. So you're not a servant anymore. Times that by a thousand or a hundred or whatever, and say, look, when you know about the end of your life, then you have a glorious freedom in your life to live for God. How exactly is it that death enslaves people? This is somewhat of a mystery to me still but it has to do with this. Man will sooner do many things than die. Thus, he is in a sense enslaved to it. This fear of death produces a bondage caused by dreading to die and that can be taken advantage of by humans with power threaten to kill the person or to take away their life or family if they don't do what they're told or take away their freedom. Even things as heinous as participating in the Holocaust. People did. German people did in order to save their own skin. Many people today would do the same thing because human nature has not changed one millimeter from back then from the very beginning of time. Because of the fear of death, people did terrible, awful Things to other humans. This is an evidence of the enslaving nature of death. People will sin egregiously to avoid death. Right? Now listen. This is the height of irony. Because it is sin itself that causes death in the first place. Why would you serve sin more in order to avoid the death that sin causes. I mean, you know, take the whisk and just scramble up your brain. That's what it is. It doesn't make sense. Others cause death in order to cover up their sin. You know, you commit a crime and there's a witness. So what do you got to do? Well, you got to kill the witness, right? Because they'll tell on you. Or you uh, commit an indiscretion and, and uh, somebody becomes pregnant. And So what do you do? You do an abortion to get rid of the evidence. You kill. And so on. Listen to a couple of quotations on this. <clears throat> One commentator on Hebrews writes this. In the Greco-Roman world, fear of death was recognized as a form of slavery. Are you a slave and afraid of death? Uh, Euripides, I think, wrote that. If I remember the footnote properly in the in the text, which so are you a slave and afraid of death, which might set you free from suffering? This is what everybody thinks. It's not right, but they think that you shouldn't be afraid of death because it's a release from suffering. It's uh, you know like euthanasia. It makes your life existence better. According to these writers, and Plutarch was another who used this kind of phraseology, one overcomes the fear of death by recognizing that it brings release from suffering. But in Hebrews, death is an instrument of the devil which has been overcome by Christ. Not welcomed. Death is not welcomed as a release since death cannot separate Christ's people from God's love. The author writes in Romans 8, It can no longer be held over our heads by the devil as a means of intimidation. He cannot use it now to make us do whatever he wants us to do. Commentator F.F. Bruce, in his Epistle to the Hebrews, says this His resurrection is implied in the text. It doesn't mention it, does it? By death, that he would destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. If death had had the last word with Jesus too, how would anyone have supposed that through death he had disabled the Prince of Death? In other words, he had to rise in order to show that he had defeated death. But then he goes on to say, The fear of death is a most potent fear. Through fear of death, many will consent to do things that nothing else could compel them to do. That is exactly what has happened to us today, my friends. People, they've used fear. They've ginned up the the statistics. They've made everything terrible. Everybody's going to die. So you have to do this. And people have said, thank you very much. I will obey because I don't want to die. They will consent to do things that nothing else could compel them to do. Some braver souls, it is true, will accept death sooner than dishonor. You know some cases like that or can imagine that. But for the majority, the fear of death can be a tyrannous instrument of coercion. And death indeed is the king of terrors to those who recognize in it the penalty of sin. The commentator continues, But by the death of their sanctifier, Christ's brothers and sisters are sanctified. His death has transformed the meaning of death for them. To them, His death means not judgment, but blessing, not bondage, but liberation. And their own death, when it comes, takes its character from His death. Why? Because He died and rose again. We will die and rise again. Our death takes the character of His death. Wonderful truth. If then death itself cannot separate the people of Christ from God's love, which has been revealed in Him, it can no longer be held over their heads by the devil or any other malign power as a means of intimidation. We just look at things totally differently as believers. Death cannot, does not have that grasp on us. So thus the fear of death does not have that grasp on us. Thus we look at situation, I think we can look at it a little more rationally, a little more prudently, a little more carefully, a little more logically, without being cowed by the fear. Bad enough for the secular-minded person who does not think about what comes after life is over. But it's even worse for somebody who understands that death is the penalty of sin and that beyond death lies eternal death waiting to swallow its victims. The gates of Hades are going to shut in people into those gates and they never will escape. Now, inasmuch as we understand what the Lord has done for us, I'm way past the the, uh, quote now. I'm on my own things here. We need not to feel the dread of death. In some way, I think we get this idea because we do not have expressions like you see in the Old Testament about how foreboding the grave is, how gloomy death and Sheol are. Death, we know, cannot separate us from the love of Christ. There's this secular notion reflected back in the Greek philosophers that death is okay because it marks a release from suffering. But that's short-sighted for two reasons. It ignores that death is wielded by Satan. And it ignores that for the unbeliever, death actually brings more suffering, not less suffering and eternal torment. This is what Jesus delivered us from. He brought life to light and abolished death. Second Timothy, back to that again. So what does the Christian faith do for us in this area of the fear of death? It releases us. Christ releases us who previously feared death from the penalty of sin. From Matthew 16.18 this morning, we learned that we can be assured, we can be bold, we can be witnesses for Christ and win others out of death into the joy of salvation and real life that they have available to them in Christ. We don't have to be fearful. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 10.28, don't fear those that can take the body. Fear those who the one who is able to destroy the body and soul in hell. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm one ten, or Psalm one eleven rather, verse ten. That's more commonly known from Proverbs one seven and Proverbs nine ten and Proverbs fifteen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fearing God more than fearing death takes our focus off of earthly things and keeps us from improperly fearing those kinds of things. Now there's one other factor besides the fear of death that I think has driven what we see in the world today. Now, I, I already talked about the love for power and the political movement of, you know, uh, order supposedly rising from chaos and all of that. That's a, a political reality we can get into another time. That's a demonic philosophy, by the way. But there, there's another more broad aspect of that which I want to touch on. The fear of death is stoked By the forces of evil in the world. And I'm talking about demonic powers now. The circumstances in which we find ourselves are not merely of human construction. And that's what we have to recognize. It was not merely humans who were playing with bat viruses in a lab, or carrying the virus to others in the marketplace, or traveling widely, or covering up the human transmissibility of the virus. It was not merely people who neglected to stockpile enough personal protective equipment or ventilators or other medical equipment. It's not just those who went out when they felt sick. It's not just people who gave orders to shut down the economy. It's not mere humans who are accumulating power at a horrifying rate. There's something else going on, isn't there? By the way, let me pause. Think with me for a moment about the nation of Egypt. Not today, but during the days of Joseph. They faced calamity, catastrophe. Not a virus, but a famine. Remember? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And what happened in that nation when that occurred? Well, Joseph was very wise and he saved people alive through the Uh, wisdom that he had to store up during the years of plenty. He saved 20% of the plenteous years so that they would have enough to get by in the years of famine. And, And to sell internationally, by the way, as you know, right? But what happened in the economy of the nation of Egypt during that time? There was a massive accumulation of power to the Pharaoh. They sold their animals, their lands, and their bodies to the Pharaoh in order to buy grain by the end of the seven years of famine. The catastrophe and the fear of death led to an upheaval of the entire society within a short span of years so that the government owned everything, even the bodies of the people, and as you know, that, that drove the economy of, Israel, of, of uh, Egypt going forward for probably generations and didn't get righted, even if it still maybe hasn't gotten righted even down to this day because that philosophy became ingrained in the culture of the nation, in the, in the, in the psyche and the mindset of the nation. <clears throat> Societies in which there is a fear of deadly disease, this is a known fact, are much more likely to be societies where tyrants rule. That is a fact of life. People will sooner give up freedom and responsibility than security from a virus or, say, a terrorist. Almighty government, please protect us from the virus. Protect us from the terrorists. We'll do whatever. We'll sell even our bodies if we have to. If it gets dire enough. That's what could happen. But back to my point, in Ephesians chapter six verse 12, the Bible tells us that we wrestle not against governors and presidents and legislators and health officials and not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13 gives us another little window on that when it tells us of the angelic Battle that goes on behind the scenes. Listen to Daniel 10 and verse number 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is this is Michael. This is an angel speaking. Michael actually mentions here, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Gabriel is the messenger angel. Sorry, I misspoke. It's Gabriel. And Michael came uh, to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. The prince of the kingdom of Persia was a demon. Some kind of demonic power. We looked at that in our study of Daniel. That stuff didn't just happen back in the day of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and all those guys. It still happens today. There are princes, demons, principalities and powers that are at work in our own day These verses lift the veil a little bit and show us behind the scene it's not merely the fear of death, but it's the fear of death as stoked by demonic forces that is trying to bend our culture, our world, our society toward their own model of what they want to do. And you can be sure that it will end as demons like things to end with death and destruction and deception, murder and mayhem. Chaos and disorder, hatred among people, famine, and all the rest. Though unseen, this world is not unreal. It is this world of demonic powers. It's very real. They're behind and under and within the movements we see across the world. They enjoy the death and chaos and the sin and the fear. They move public officials public thinkers and philosophers and writers to convince people in the world to do evil things. They convince people to persecute the church and the Jews. You know, it's irrelevant whether those people that are, that are doing that are self-aware of what they're doing. They're being used by demons whether they recognize it or not. In fact, in John 16, verse 2, Jesus told about these kind of people He said, in killing you, they will think that they're doing God a favor. They're offering God service by killing you. What kind of crazy idea is that? Fear is also attached to deception, either self-deception or the deception of others to get us to conform to the way that they wish us to behave. Now, I can imagine some are objecting and saying this all seems a bit excessive. Aren't you a bit too worried about things? I'm not really worried. I'm just an observer of facts and uh, history. Note now that I'm not just talking about COVID. Okay? We're not living in a world that is only, the only problem is COVID. Okay? COVID is just the additional problem that we've been dealing with lately on top of an interconnected network of movement of the homosexual agenda in cultural Marxism and intersectionality and critical race theory and communism, socialism, all rising in the world. All of this fits the biblical model of the coming Antichrist who will rule the world, promising peace and maybe a lessening of fear and putting himself up as the Savior of mankind, demanding ultimately worship and all the rest that we know about from the book's of the Scriptures. We're not on board with that program. We know it's going to happen because God has ordained it to happen. We're not okay with it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, it's going to happen, but it's not like we rush it along or want it to, to come about because it's evil. We're not happy that it will come upon an unsuspecting world and many will die and be lost forever. We're not victims of tyrannical fear of death like all the rest. Consequently, we evaluate things like our current situation much differently than the unbelieving eyes of the world do. Or mind, perhaps better, I could say. And so we just leave the subject there for now we find ourselves. But because we have that assurance from Jesus in Matthew sixteen eighteen, we simply don't need to cave into that fear of death. Hades and its bars cannot gate you in because you have been freed from sin and from death in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can have joy because you're saved. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to You for showing us in Your Word the kinds of things that are really going on in the world. These are tremendous events in our day. And they have tremendous implications. They have tremendous forces working behind them and behind the scenes. And also tremendous emotions. And that driving force, that that most potent of fears, death itself, driving people to behaviors that they would never have contemplated a year ago. Our God in heaven, help us to be different. You've caused us to be separate from the world, not the same as the world. And so we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.